On our Family Matters feature this morning, we are revisiting a conversation that we had a couple of weeks ago around dealing with grief. I, I promised you that, you know, we would do part two of this discussion because there was a lot of reaction when we spoke about this. We couldn't get to many calls. Um, many WhatsApps came through. A lot of you were sharing your experiences of dealing with grief. Uh, in fact, the producers are reminding me it was three months ago when we first had this conversation. So I want us to continue it, to continue with it this morning. Previously, we touched on the psychology of grief, the different stages of grief, how the body responds to losing a loved one, a job or a relationship. Uh, sometimes you find that some people will cry. You know, some people become numb during grief and, and all of this is controlled by our nervous system. Hmm? So how can you navigate the journey of grief? And it's a natural and complex response to loss and people handle it differently there's no one way to go about it but there are things that you and i can do to help ourselves navigate the journey of grief and that's what we're going to talk about all of us have experienced grief at some point in our lives and it's so complex Hmm? and as much as working through grief can be a painful process it's a necessary one to ensure your future emotional and physical well-being. You may feel like you don't want to go through those emotions now, but at some point you will be forced to. And that's the thing about grief. You cannot not go through it. You can postpone it, find ways to distract yourself, but for you to be okay and at peace with your loss, you have to go through grief. And that doesn't mean you won't ever feel sad again for your loss because it's a journey. There may be other triggers along the way, which is why knowing how to navigate this journey of grief is so important. So I want you to share your experiences with us. How have you dealt with your grief? How did you navigate it in your experience? Have you ever stopped grieving? Do you even stop grieving? We know about the five stages of grief, right? The denial, the anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Did you go through all of these stages? Give me a call on 011-883-0702. The WhatsApp line is 072-702-1702. Jeannie Carvey is a clinical psychologist who's going to guide us through this conversation. Jeannie, thank you uh, for coming back to continue this discussion with us. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me again. I just want us to recap um, a little bit before then we, we take the conversation forward. Recap on what we touched on the last time. Uh, Just help us understand what grief is, just the psychology of grief. You know, I actually re-listened to our discussion last time in preparation for today just to see what we covered and what we can still talk about. And it was such an important conversation and we had so many listeners reaching out because it's such a universal experience of losing somebody and having to go through the grieving process. It's so much part of the human experience and everybody can relate on some level. We spoke about um, losing loved ones. There's also pet loss, um, different kinds of relationships. And we also even spoke about um, the grieving process of divorce. And at some point in another, what we know about relationships is that relationships come with loss. And that even if you have a beautiful and wonderful relationship with somebody, at some point, a relationship will end because our lives end. Um, so everybody has that experience of loss. And recapping from what we discussed last time and the, the important points that we covered and everybody's beautiful contributions um, of the people that, that voice noted, WhatsApped and also called in, um, was that we looked at the different themes of the person as a system, 
the person in a system and then the system in context. Now, what did we mean by that? The person as a system, we spoke about trauma. We spoke about how the nervous system is like a container. It can only hold so much information at a time and it's not allowed to spill. And when too much information and not enough time to process that information happens, we get capsules of unprocessed data, which we call trauma, which sits like, sit like rocks in the bucket and take up more space and make it difficult for us to deal with ongoing stress. And the result of this is that traumas can be re-triggered. Grief can be re-triggered even many, many years later. Um, even just right before our session, our, a client was sharing about a, and this interview now, a client was sharing about a, a trauma and a loss. And she said, I can't believe I'm still sad. It's been 20 years, but that rock mm -hmm. sits in the bucket for a very, very, very long time. And it can get re-triggered at any time. And the more and more we um, rocks we have in the bucket, the less space we have for processing ongoing stress and everyday stress. So we spoke about the person as a system in terms of the trauma response. And then we also spoke about the person in a system in terms of the relationship with the person who has passed away and um, dealing with unfinished emotional business that you could have with the person that's passed away and not having the ongoing communication with them to have the possibility of resolving that unfinished business and how painful and devastating that is. The loss of the dream of the life that you still wanted to share with them. The fact that the loss is cumulative, it gets more and more over time as you miss the person more and more. And even if you didn't have unfinished emotional business, the, um, the feeling of not having that person in your life anymore and missing them and who they were and what they meant and what their life meant, that's a very important thing that a person deals with when working with, with um, grief as well. And then finally, we also touched on the person in a system. So the person, the system in context. So who are we now, the context of these relationships, now that this particular person is not here to participate anymore? There's a reshuffling um, of the system in context of how we all relate to each other now. Maybe it's the patriarch of the family who's passed away. Um, maybe it's a child and now we don't share a child anymore. Maybe it's a sibling and now I'm an only child, not a, not a, a sibling anymore. Maybe it's a spouse and I'm now no longer a wife but a widow. So who do we all, how do we all fit in together now and what is the actual organization of our system, of our family system, of our community, now that this person isn't here anymore? Like you said, Clement, we did touch on the five stages of grief and how these are not linear, how these are, these can happen in many different ways and look very different for, for a lot of people. And then we also spoke about um, Kessler's sixth stage of grief, which is making meaning. Um, and how important it is to make meaning of our losses. And that process can take very many years in terms of us coming to understand the meaning of the loss. And then also in terms of making meaning, dreaming a new dream for my life, now that I no longer have this particular relationship in my life, dreaming a new dream of how my life can be from here on out. And that doesn't mean getting over the death or replacing the person. It means um, acknowledging the undeniable fact that we have to in some way carry on and that there's already been one death, which is tragic and hard enough to suffer and, and die within ourselves and our self-actualization would make two tragedies um, and how painful and difficult it is to carry on, but carry on we do and carry on we must. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, preemptive uh, grief uh, as well. I think that's what we touched on um, the last time when you're about to experience the death of a loved one. And I remember some of the calls we were taking, Jeannie, were around whether you can even prepare yourself for something like that. So if you've got um, your your mom, your dad, your sister, you know, any loved one who is sick and uh, you can tell that they are probably not going to make it, is there a way you can even be preemptive um, in how 
you will be mourning them and sort of like prepare yourself for that eventuality? I think it's so difficult because, you know, it's such a, a surreal and unreal experience to really be confronting mortality. It's almost like our human brain can't really process or fathom it. Um, we don't know what happens when we die. Um, we have very strong beliefs. Some people have very strong beliefs. Some people don't know. Um, we have theories about what happens when you die, um, but we don't actually know for a fact, fact, and that's why it's called faith, because we don't know it for a fact. Um, so to process the, the passing of somebody and to make sense of it before they die is very difficult. And your nervous system is also quite highly activated into a survival response because somebody's survival is being threatened, somebody that you care about, their survival is being threatened. So you're not actually in the meaning-making and um, uh, meaningfully understanding part of your brain even. You're in your subcortex and not your cortical brain. So I think that, you know, when somebody takes a very long time to die and you know that they're going to die, it's almost like you lose the person twice. You lose them when they're very sick and they're not the same like they used to be. Um, they maybe are not functional or they maybe suffer a loss of dignity. They also may be angry or maybe they're, they're disconnected. So there's a loss of how you know them in their healthy body. Um, and then you lose them again when they actually physically die. So it's two losses. And I think that both of those losses have got different grieving processes. When somebody dies very suddenly, it's also very difficult because you didn't have time to be aware that they're going to die and say some of the things you would have liked to at least say um, to them and, um, and start making practical arrangements. But I think that it doesn't make it that much easier when you do know the person's going to die because even if you are prepared, even if you are um, saying the things that you would like to say, you can't imagine what it's like to be in the world without them until it actually happens. It's like trying to imagine a whole new color. Yeah. 011-883-0702. That's where you can give us a call or send us a WhatsApp voice note on 072-702-1702. What's your experience with grief? Um, have you dealt with grief before? How did you navigate it? Um, have you dealt with preemptive grief? Have you dreamt of a loved one who's passed? Or maybe for you, you are grieving the dream you've always had of your marriage, of your friendship, maybe of a career. And you want to build a new dream. Give me a call or send us a WhatsApp voice note to share your experiences with us. It's 22 after 11. 7.02. Family Matters. All right, 25 minutes after 11 o'clock. Jeannie Carvey is a clinical psychologist. Um, we were just recapping on what we had discussed around grief uh, when we started this conversation about two months ago. And we are continuing it because the last time we didn't do justice to it. There, was just, there were just so many calls um, and so many WhatsApp messages that we couldn't even get to. So... We, and I had promised you that we'll have part two of this conversation. So I'm going to go to your calls now on 011-883-0702. Um, I've got your WhatsApps also coming through on 072-702-1702. Let's start with Tony, who's calling us from Four Ways. Uh, Tony, good morning. Hi, Clement. How are you doing? I'm all right, Tony. How are you? Fine, thank you. Thanks for taking my call. First, sure. caller in. Welcome. <laughs> so I just wanted to... Um, first of all, greet your guest. But mm. second of all, my son has a rare disease called Frederick's ataxia, mm. and he was diagnosed at 12, and it's a neuromuscular progressive disease. So he's been in a wheelchair for eight years now. He was able to walk and be normal before. And, you know, listening to your grief and death, and that really triggered me because I'm more than a lot of my son that's not dead yet. 
Mm-hmm. And the guilt of possibly feeling relieved if he did her and then feeling guilty for wanting him to go. Mm-hmm. So, saying that, you know, you've got time to say goodbye, but it's for the guilt. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, so I just wanted <laughs> to call in and just say yeah. that's my story. Yeah. Oof, Tony. Yeah. Um, and thank you so much for, you know, just for your bravery to, to call in and be vulnerable around just how how genuinely you feel about it and that guilt that you feel. If you don't mind, Tony, just stay on the line so I can get maybe Ginny, in case Ginny has a follow-up question. Ginny, uh, you've heard what Tony had to say. Yes, um, yeah, Tony, uh, I think you said right at the beginning, it's your first time calling in to a radio station. Obviously, a very, very important feeling that you're wanting to share and um, how many people around the, the country listening to this are just really feeling so seen and heard and understood by you right now, um, which I think is a beautiful gift that you shared with everybody of sharing your experience. And Tony, what we hear from you is that you are in an impossible situation. Um, one part of you being a mom doing absolutely anything to protect your child, um, and that might even sometimes mean even longing to protect him from the pain that he's currently feeling and wishing for him to be relieved from that pain. And then that other mom part coming in and feeling guilty for feeling that way. Um, and like you said, you really, really resonated with you. And you felt quite triggered, but it really resonated with you. Um, we were talking about yeah. grieving somebody who's still alive and grieving how he used to be, where he used to be um, a, a mobile, he used to be able to walk, and then grieving him while he's alive. And then one day when he passes away, you would have to do that again. And so it's an impossible situation for any person to be in. Yeah. 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 I, also, I, also want, I also want to point out that when he was diagnosed, I started a support group because it's a very, very rare disease. And I belong to Rare Disease South Africa. The one thing I want to point out is the extreme loneliness of people that go through this. Even though you have the support, just no one understands. And I think... You know, people that know someone with a rare disease or someone that's going through anything, don't wait for them to ask. You know, just help. Maybe do a, a bag of laundry once a week or once a month or take a meal round or something like that because we're all warriors and brave, but we're not that brave. Mm. So that's all I wanted yes. to say. And thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Oh. I think it's so important, Tony, because something that I was thinking about we need to talk about today is, is how important interpersonal, meaningful, interpersonal, emotional support is and how we are not trained in our culture to be able to talk to somebody like in your situation because we don't actually have the language to meaningfully hold space for your pain. Mm. And we don't have the training to meaningfully hold space for that kind of pain. And so I'm sure you get people saying all kinds of things to you that are really unhelpful, um, you know, what we call corrective listening and, um, and positive bypass, toxic positivity, and saying sentences that start with the two most awful words in the English language, at least. Mm. So as soon as you say at least, you know you're not being properly empathic. And so you've brought up such an important point there, Tony, of interpersonal support. And you can feel that people care, but people don't know how to show up. Um, and what are we hearing from you is some practical support and places in which you can share your feelings, places in which you can yeah. go into the parts that are scared and angry and sad and helpless having support for those parts, not just being told all the time that you've got to be brave, that would be very, yeah. very helpful yeah. in terms of breaking and I, and isolation and learning. 
one thing before Clement goes to news, I just yeah. think I want to tell people that have people that go through this, don't say to them, God doesn't give you what you can't handle. Because that, I think, is that yeah, the biggest pet peeve of most people. Mm. I am a Christian and I believe in God, but he didn't give this to me. So please don't yeah. say that. <laughs> yeah. oh, Tony, thank you so much, man. Um, geez, and good on you, man. I mean, Tony has even started, I mean, as difficult as it is, she started a support group um, and she talks about how lonely it is. And after the headlines, uh, Jeannie will talk about th- that importance of emotional support, having people you can talk to genuinely about how you feel and you can be open enough and say, I actually do wish sometimes um, that my child can die because then it takes away the pain and you can talk about the guilt that you feel when you wish that for your child. Um, we'll talk about that importance of support after the latest in eyewitness news headlines. Keep your calls and your WhatsApps coming. It's 1131. 7.02. Family Matters. All right, it's uh, 24 minutes before 12 o'clock on our Family Matters feature this morning. We are discussing uh, grief. How do you navigate um, this journey of grief and I've got your calls, your WhatsApps as well, as well that are coming through. Before I go to more calls and, and more WhatsApps, um, Ginny, I, I want you to just talk more about that importance of, of emotional support. Tony raised an important point about the loneliness that sometimes people who are going through uh, this are feeling, whether it's people who are grieving or people who are dealing with uh, this so-called preemptive grief. So how important is it for people who, are f- have, who have these feelings, to be part of some support group? Well, it's not important, Kim, and it's crucial. It's absolutely crucial. Um, um, Peter Levine, who's the father of somatic experiencing and really one of the foundational thinkers in how we understand trauma today, um, says trauma isn't what happens to you. Trauma is what happens to you in the absence of a compassionate witness. That when we have another nervous system that really lends us bandwidth, that lends us space, lends us some real estate in their container, it gives us the opportunity to be able to process without those capsules of unprocessed data um, accumulating. I want to just touch back on, on Tony and just not misrepresent what Tony said, that she said sometimes she imagines that she could possibly be relieved if her child passed, not that she necessarily mm. wished it would happen, mm. but that she might be relieved. And how important it is to be really, really, really understood. Um, I'm also at the moment busy looking at um, internal family systems, which is so interesting. It's um, by Richard Schwartz, and he's got such a good book called No Bad Parts. And he talks in that book about how we don't actually have a mono mind. We actually have many different minds. But in our culture, we've kind of been taught that that means that we're schizophrenic or we've got multiple personalities. But actually, it's quite normal. We often have conversations with ourselves um, inside of our mind. So you don't want to necessarily get up and go to gym. And so you start telling yourself all sorts of narratives about why you shouldn't, why you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Those are our different parts having conversations with each other. And so it's important to have support for all of the parts. It's important that Tony has got a, a brave part. She's also got a part that's exhausted. She's also got a part that's lonely. She's also got a part that would be relieved if um, the suffering was over. And then the inner critic comes in, another part comes in and says, but that makes you bad and that means you don't love your child and that means you you, you are, aren't willing to go through this. And that's not true at all. We can have so many different feelings about the same thing and all of those feelings are valid and none of those feelings makes us a bad person or that we need to feel guilty about. So having support for all of those feelings and making space for all the parts, because when a part gets heard and a part gets acknowledged, 
and how it's trying to actually protect you, um, it can sort of come into equilibrium with the other parts and we can have an, an equilibrium in our internal family system. He calls mm-hmm. it an internal family system instead of a, a family therapy with lots of different people. It's family therapy inside your own mind. It's very, very, very interesting and very, very beautiful work. And he says when those parts come in, when they're heard, just like people, when they're heard and they feel acknowledged in their intention of what they're trying to do to protect the system, yeah. they can stop over-functioning, come into equilibrium with each other, and then the self can be the one that drives the show, and the self is always programmed for wellness and optimal functioning, and we know that from the work of Carl Rogers all the way back in 1951. So interpersonal support means like proper, meaningful, and accurate empathy that matches the depth with accuracy of what the other person is experiencing without trying to interfere with that feeling or get the person to feel something mm-hmm. that is more socially acceptable or easier for me to feel um, to, to hold for you. So when you are in pain, and I can empathize with that pain to the right degree of accuracy and depth, that person can then feel understood in that particular part that's feeling that particular way in that particular moment. It doesn't mean that that's the person's only feeling or their entire feeling, but having her been heard and understood and accepted for that part, mm. that all those parts can come into equilibrium. And like Tony was saying, when people can't tolerate that pain, when people can't tolerate the complexity of the feeling, they will wish to bypass and they will say things like, oh, but God wouldn't give you this if he, if he didn't think you can handle it. And that's actually me saying, I need to feel better about the pain. So I'm going to relieve myself of, of, of feeling this with you by passing it off that, oh, God wouldn't do this if he didn't think that you could cope. And I'm sure there's parts of Tony that does feel, okay, well, I can cope. And Tony is a Christian and Tony does have faith, but there's also parts of her that are angry and frustrated and feel resentful and feel disappointed and confused and all of those need support. So it's important for each one of us, it's crucial for each one of us to build up the emotional resilience that we can hold pain for other people when they are grieving because they are unable to do it for themselves in that moment because the grief is just too overwhelming. And we need to get comfortable with uncomfortable feelings so that we don't resort to condolences, we don't resort to platitudes in order to diffuse the intensity of somebody else's very painful very real and very important emotions. Yeah. In fact, um, um, one, one listener on the WhatsApp line says, Clement and guest, um, I'm really battling with what to say to a parent that just lost a child a few months ago. I don't want to bring up the pain. Um, um, but also I don't want to ignore the deep sorrow, uh, that they carry. So I'm glad you, you spoke so extensively, um, Jeannie, about the importance of that, just that, that support. Um, Ruaida, Ruaida, mm-hmm. you're calling us from um, Odekersburg. On Deckersburg. Yeah. Go, go ahead. Good morning. Yes. Good morning to you, uh, Clement. And um, my, my, you know, my uh, uh, story is that in our family, we basically watched two very sad um, uh, family members, mothers, mm. basically giving up when they lost their daughters. Different instances, the first instance, I know this family uh, still had a Sunday lunch with a daughter and the family, and that evening they got a call that she was shot, husband shot her. Mm. When we, we, well, because we bury basically immediately or the next day, we, we all went there. And as we walked up to her to sympathize, she put her hand up and she says, don't sympathize with me. I can't live without my daughter. Exactly six, seven months later, she passed away. Mm. She basically just gave up. Nothing we could do. We tried to talk to her, tried to get her for, to counseling. She'd leave me alone. 
can't live, with, live without my daughter. Mm. Second instance, Molly is the same. Died with a younger son in a car accident. Same thing. Mother just gave up. And the sad part is, in the first instance, there were three other boys left behind. Oof. And in the second instance, two sisters. And they had to watch mm. their moms give up mm. on life. Mm. Mm. Oh, that's, uh, that's so terrible. Oh, so, and can grief be that overwhelming, Jeannie, that it can actually yeah. kill you? Yes, and we often see this, you know, we just want to extend, you know, um, my, my empathy to your family, what, what, what terrible losses you've been through, not only of these, these children, but also their mothers and these um, other, the, the remaining children losing their mum and how there's so many more tragedies there. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know, Kim, and losing a child is like kind of pain that I don't think we can imagine. I don't think you can fathom what that pain must be like. I think it's the absolutely worst thing that can happen to a human is to lose a child. And, you know, when it comes to empathy and even like Rita saying, you know, they wanted to um, uh, offer sympathy and be there for her and support her, it's very difficult sometimes when a person um, is so shut down in their nervous system that they actually can't connect. So the nervous system has got like like a built-in self-destruct button that if the pain is too much, it will just implode in itself. It's kind of like people jumping out of the windows of the Twin Towers on 9-11. They, they know there's no way they can survive this, and so they want it to rather end quickly. And it's not a conscious thing. So I would like us to try and maybe find other language than give up, but that actually these women were unable to recover. Maybe we can rather use language like that, that these women were unable to recover, even though they had other children that needed them, even though they had other children that they could love and be with and, and care for and nurture, that they were unable to recover and their nervous system imploded in on itself. And it's not a conscious decision. It's not something that a person deliberately decides to do. Um, it's kind of like saying a diabetic should just make more um, insulin in their pancreas. It's a neurophysiological phenomenon that we see and the person has no conscious control over it because the conscious mind lives in a different functional unit to the survival center of your brain. And I can hear the desperation and the helplessness that Rowita's family system sat with in trying to reach these women and help them. And even the, the anger and the loss of these two women as well, compounded with the loss of the children and the disappointment there. And at the same time, I think we can use rather language like unable to recover, then give up, if that's okay with you, Rowita because I think it's a more accurate reflection of the complete devastation of child loss. And children who survive sibling loss will often experience, not all the time, but will often experience um, that their parent was unable to care for them. And the parent will often be unable to remember that they have other children um, because the, the pain is just too immense and the, the impact on the nervous system is too immense for the person to be able to connect because the, the neurophysiologicals is also from Peter Levine, the same neurophysiological structures that govern connection and well-being and safety and good feeling are the exact same neurophysiological structures that manage our trauma response. So when those structures are too busy with the trauma response, they are unavailable for connection and safety through connection. And that can make it very mm. difficult for those trying to support somebody who's gone through grief. I think also something that makes it difficult is finding the balance back to that, um, that, that WhatsApp that you received, finding the balance of compassion and pity. Mm. Um, nobody wants to be pitied. Um, coming from a family myself where there was child loss, um, there was something almost a little bit like disconnecting about it where you knew that other families wouldn't want that for themselves. 
So he almost felt a bit excluded from the community of intact families now, um, even though that's not a rational um, response, because of course it's emotional. That's like, well, our family has gone through something that other families wouldn't want to go through, so therefore we are now a little bit excluded um, and feel a little bit less than. Um, and then to receive pity in a moment like that, where the empathy is, is coupled with a feeling sorry for you, and I don't wish to be like that, then that, that empathy can also be disconnecting. So finding it's not easy and we're not trained how to do it. And, you know, even as a therapist myself with many years experience now, even when, when Tony phoned us earlier, there was a moment where I was like, oh, goodness, I don't have this in my immediately available of how to meaningfully respond to this person. And I was trained for nine years. I've been practicing for 13 years. So it's a very long time to be practicing this kind of thing. And you still don't really have the language that meaningfully captures it. So I want to just acknowledge that, that person in the WhatsApp of wanting to reach out to this family and finding it difficult to strike the balance of empathy and pity because it is a very difficult balance to strike. And also to Rowena and her family who, who attempted as best as they could to reach these people and support them and care for them. But those people, those mothers were unavailable for connection after the loss of their children. Yeah, sure. Um, let's, let's go to some WhatsApp voice note. Good morning, Cameron, the 702 listeners. Uh, when my dad passed away, I was so heartbroken. I didn't want to be around uh, the hospital where he was admitted. But I felt better going to her grave, to his grave, sorry. So the therapist said, you must do what you feel like doing if you feel like you don't you want to avoid you don't you don't want to be near the hospital avoid it if you feel like you're going to the grave every day do that but over and above what comforted me was uh, prayer only prayer morning clement and your guest just to comment on the current discussion I think I'm currently going through the anger stage of grief. So my cousin was stabbed to death by an ex-girlfriend just, I think, two weeks ago. And I'm just, sure, struggling and wanting to understand what happened and all of those things. I think right now, even during the funeral or when we went to go and identify the body in the house, I just couldn't cry. But when I got home, I cried. I'm just right now especially with the court processes starting is just anger and anger that this thing is not getting as much traction as much attention and i really want to understand what led her to kill him because i don't believe this was his exit to this world thanks uh good morning clement uh what a difficult uh topic to talk about i just want to find out from uh the expert there I've got an issue whereby I normally, when I drive alone, I will miss my mom and I will immediately cry uh, for a while. And then after crying, I become better. Um, but it happens now and then. I, I lost my mom in 2015. Until now, this thing is still happening and I don't know if it's because I didn't grieve enough or, or, or whatever. But yeah, I, I don't know. 
Yeah, I'm. I'm sorry to hear about Please. your mom. Um, uh, Jenny, uh, can you? Because there are some people who think, okay, I've grieved, I've cried the last two years or the last six months. Therefore, I've dealt with it. So, is it normal? I suppose that's what the listener is asking. Is it normal that since 2015, after after the mom died, to this day, um, she he he is still triggered and still feels that pain. And whenever he cries, when he misses his mom then he feels a lot better. Yeah, so normal, so beautiful, actually. Um, she'll always be your mama. Like, that will never change. Um, and so, of course, you're going to miss her. Um, and you cry because you miss her. You cry because she's gone. Um, and if she was alive, you wouldn't be crying. And it's not the, her death that you cry. It's the, the absence of her in your life today that you miss. Those were the words, um, listener. You said you miss your mom. Um, and it's such a beautiful and special relationship. I can hear your mom was a wonderful lady. Um, and your life is just not, not quite the same without her. Really, really longing um, to reconnect with her. And your crying is a beautiful, beautiful, natural way that we regulate our nervous system. Um, so crying has a regulatory response, and that's why we feel better after a good cry. But we've been socialized from a young age to be taught that crying is in some way um, weak or shameful or that it means that we're not okay. Um, but crying is actually our nervous system's way of regulating itself so making more space in the container so that we can feel important feelings from beginning, middle to end. And when we allow ourselves, like this courageous man phoning in or um, voice noting in, when we allow ourselves to feel fully, deeply and thoroughly from beginning, middle to end, we clear that emotional um, content out of our nervous system for that round and we make more space in our nervous system, we will feel better. I want to just say, you know, all of these people um, reaching out and what people go through and all of these courageous people sharing their experiences with us um, and the pain and the anguish. Um, uh, the first person just saying that their the therapist had a wonderful therapist who encouraged them to do exactly what felt right for them in that moment of being able to go to, to the grave. Um, the voice note there of the listener whose cousin was stabbed to death just two weeks ago and how important that anger is in terms of giving you the energy to keep going on. Um, so we know that the sympathetic nervous system is the part of our nervous system that gives us access to the wonderful um, energetic emotional states of anger and how without it you would probably be quite, quite, um, quite tired, quite exhausted right now. And so the anger kind of keeps us going and it's an important part. It's an important part to, to have that anger to help keep us going. Um, and then our last one there of just missing his mama. And yes, if eight, eight years, the, the nervous system doesn't know the difference between the past, the present and the future. Only our conscious mind knows mm. the difference between the past, the present and the future. Our conscious mind and our frontal lobe can tell time. Um, we can't tell time in our subcortex. We can't tell time in our subconscious. And so parts, it's like your mom is, is, it's just been lost um, and time won't make a difference to that. And even for the client, eight years in the grander scheme of things of a whole lifetime of relationship is really nothing in the grander scheme of things. Mm. So yes, very, very, very normal crying will definitely help regulate and make us feel better. And also with prayer, that we know that when a person is deep in prayer, they go through beautiful brain waves. That's also very, very regulated for the nervous system. So not only for those that it's resonant for, because religion is not resonant for everybody, and that's 100% fine, but for it is resonant for to be able to connect and make meaning um, through prayer is very valuable on a, on a conscious and emotional level. But even on a subcortical level, on a neurophysiological level, the pattern of brainwaves that people go into in prayer is very therapeutic and regulatory mm. for the nervous system. How do people deal with, with the triggers? Because there may be triggers along the way. 
which is why maybe knowing how to navigate this journey of grief um, is so important. Um, and I've been receiving some of the messages from people who say, I'm triggered by, I think we took a voice note earlier, um, the hospital that my dad um, went mm. to before he died. Um, maybe for some people it's when the birthday weekend for their loved one comes, uh, that's a big trigger for them. Uh, should you just respond and and just allow yourself to sit in that mourning period or or is it best then to distract yourself or maybe avoid the road where the hospital is? How do you deal with the triggers? So I'm going to take a leaf out of that therapist's book that um, our first voice notes in this last round gave of do what exactly what feels right for you. So there's absolutely no, you know, the problem with grief is that there's no way that we can make it better. Um, there are other ways that we can make it worse. So we can always make it worse, but we actually can't make it better because it's a fact. The person is gone and we can't bring them back. So we can't actually heal and recover fully from grief because we always will have lost that person. It can get easier. We can learn to live with it. We can meaning of it. We can learn to carry it. We can clear away the trauma, but we can't bring the person back. So we can't resolve it fully ever. But you do what actually feels right for your nervous system and what you can tolerate. There's no glory in catching a falling piano. So if it feels too much for you, to go to the hospital, then don't go to the hospital. If it feels too much for you to acknowledge the birthday, then don't acknowledge it. But if it feels right for you and it helps you to make feel closer with the person and it helps you to deeply feel those feelings and you've got space to feel those feelings and you've got support to feel those feelings, then absolutely, if that feels right for you. But it's so personal and so individual. And I think the most important thing is not that the person who's grieving is the one to be training on how to manage the grief, but everybody that they've got in their support system, we all need training on how to look after each other when somebody has suffered a personal and close loss. Yeah, Jenny, uh, you're always great in helping us navigate the, these important conversations. Thank you so much uh, for once again oh. making time for us. Jenny Kave is a clinical psychologist.